In the early 2000s, Bill Ford Jr. became the CEO of Ford Motor Company, the company that shares his last name. Although he stepped down from that role a few years later, he remains the executive chairman of Ford Motor Company. Now, my question is, was Bill Ford Jr., of all the people on earth, was he the best person, the most qualified person to run the company? I don't know the answer to that. But one has to wonder, since he shares the Ford name and comes from the Ford family, if that's exactly the case. Now, it's not like Bill got off the couch and became the CEO. I mean, he did start at a lower rung in the company and work his way up. But when he became the CEO, many people wondered if this was a case of nepotism or if it was truly the fact that he was the best person to run the company at that time. Now, I'm talking about people who are business journalists, automotive journalists, and perhaps even people who own stock or work for the company. Some people wondered whether favoritism, nepotism, was behind his elevation to the role of executive officer of the company. The Ford family, although they only own 2% of the common stock in Ford, they own 40%. The the shares that they hold are a special class, which gives them 40% of the voting rights. And so anyone who buys the stock or goes to work there should know that they are in control of what happens with the company. And since it's their company to control, they have the right to make a decision about who runs it. So I'm not calling into question his competence. I'm just observing the fact that he is a member of the family. And sometimes family-owned companies are ruled and run by favoritism, by nepotism. I don't know if he's the best person to run the company, but I know this. His family felt he was the best person to represent their interests. And so if it was favoritism that was at play or had any factor at all to do in the decision, it's an illustration of a truth. And that truth is that favoritism makes sense to people. Now, it doesn't make sense in every situation. It makes sense if you are the one receiving the favoritism or if you are the one granting the favoritism to someone else. If you own a company and you've built that company, and you have the the right to make decisions about that company, there's nothing wrong with you wanting to use that company to benefit the people that you love, benefit your family. And so it makes sense to provide for your family members as an act of favoritism. And this is why many companies are family companies and remain family companies. It also makes sense if you have friends and you like your friends and you want to work with your friends and you want to benefit your friends, and favoritism makes sense in that context as well. It makes sense to provide for your friends. Even Jesus acknowledged this when he said in Luke chapter 6, verses 32 and 33, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Now, Jesus gave this teaching in order to teach us Christians to love our enemies. But in so doing, he acknowledges the human sensibility of favoritism, why it makes sense for people to show favoritism to people they love and people they care about. It's a natural, normal human thing. It makes sense in many human contexts. 
Here in James chapter 2, James is teaching us about favoritism in the church. And in this pretty lengthy paragraph that goes from verse 1 of chapter 2 to verse 13 of chapter 2, James is trying to instruct us about the role of favoritism in the church. And what he's telling us is favoritism has no role in the church. Because although favoritism makes sense in many human contexts, the Bible tells us, and James is going to tell us in this passage, that God hates favoritism, and his people should too. Favoritism makes sense in many human contexts, but God hates favoritism, and so should his people. That's really the banner, the one-sentence summary that I would give for James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. God hates favoritism, and his people should too. Now, even though this is one paragraph, verses 1 through 13, there's one paragraph, there's a lot in this section. And so I've broken it down by subparagraphs, and I'm giving a message to each one of the subparagraphs. I walked you through those subparagraphs last Sunday, and I just want to review that quickly for you this morning, just so you understand where we've been and where we're going. The first subparagraph, which we looked at last Sunday, is in verses uh, 2 through 4, 1 through 4, I mean, and that tells us that favoritism comes from evil motives. Why does God hate favoritism because favoritism comes from evil motives when it's done in the church. The second thing James teaches us about favoritism is in verses five through seven. And that is that favoritism is ungodly. Why should we not show favoritism in the church? Because favoritism is ungodly. And by the word ungodly, I mean, it's not like God. God does not act out of favoritism as we'll see. Finally, in the final part of the paragraph verses eight through 13, The Bible tells us that favoritism will be judged by God. This is why we shouldn't show favoritism in the church. These are the sections of this one paragraph of Scripture, James 2, 1 through 13. And today we'll be looking at verses 5 through 7, which shows us that favoritism is ungodly. Why shouldn't we show favoritism among the people of God? Why is it wrong for people in the church to act out of favoritism? The answer is because favoritism is ungodly, as we're going to see in today's passage of Scripture. Now again, favoritism is a human thing. It makes sense to human beings to show favoritism. But as we'll see in these verses this morning, favoritism makes no sense for Christians. On a human level, favoritism is logical. It makes sense. But if you're a Christian... It makes no sense to live your life in favoritism and to demonstrate favoritism toward other people. We're going to see that together in verses 5 through 7 of James chapter 2. And the first thing we're going to see about this point, this truth, that favoritism makes no sense for Christians. The first reason James is going to give us why favoritism makes no sense for Christians is because Christ saves people without favoritism. Remember I said that favoritism is ungodly. It's ungodlike. It's not the way God operates. And the first thing that James is going to show us to demonstrate to us that favoritism is ungodly is that in salvation, God does not operate out of favoritism. Christ saves people without showing favoritism to anyone. And he begins in verse 5 by saying, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? 
In this section, James begins describing how God did not show favoritism in salvation. And he begins with a command. The command is the word, listen. After describing how favoritism has shown up in these churches that James is writing to, as we saw last Sunday, where a wealthy man comes in and he gets a good seat and a poor man is told to stand in the back or sit on the floor next to my stinky feet. James then returns to the point and he says, listen. Okay, this is what you say to people, probably to your children, when you want their attention to be focused on what you have to say. And that's exactly what James is saying here. He's saying, listen, to try to reason with us and get us to see the the unsensibility, the senselessness of favoritism when we practiced it in the church. And so he begins with that word, listen, which is a command. But then he goes on and says this. He says again, my dear brothers and sisters, And I told you before that James uses this phrase, my dear brothers, and the word sisters is added by context by the NIV translation. But James uses this phrase, my brothers, frequently in his book, often to begin a paragraph, but not in this case. He did, in verse 1, begin by saying, my brothers, but now he repeats it again. And he does so for a couple of reasons. First of all, he adds the word dear, and he says, you're my beloved brothers and sisters, And his reason for doing this is, first of all, to remind the people that their focus should be on their faith in God. And the way we operate as a church needs to be reflective of the fact that we are part of the family of God, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that there is no hierarchy in Jesus. There's Jesus, and then there's the rest of us. He's the Lord, and we are his servants, but we are also his children. But by calling us my dear brothers and sisters, he adds to um, and prepares us for what's going to come. Because what James is going to say is very sharp. It's very direct. It's very pointed. And sometimes when you say sharp, direct, and pointed things, people take it personally. And people feel that you are wounding them, that you are trying to hurt them. James wants us to understand that what he's about to say is not said to wound us. It's said for our good. It's, it's, it's spoken, it's written to correct our thinking. And so he reminds us of his, dear, of his love for the people who were the first readers. As brothers and sisters in Christ, they are loved and valued. They're cared for as followers of Jesus Christ. And so he calls us my brothers and affirms his love for us while directing the spiritual favoritism that is so easy and that we are so susceptible for. Then he goes on and adds another phrase and actually gets to the first, um, the kind of the core of the meat of the argument here. And what I, um, what I want you to understand is that James argues the reasonability or the unreasonability of favoritism in this passage by asking a bunch of rhetorical questions. I think there are four of them in total in this subparagraph of Scripture. And you know that a rhetorical question is a question that you ask for effect. It's not because you're trying to elicit information from somebody. It's because you're trying to get somebody to reason with you and agree. And so that's how James structures this passage. He doesn't make, he does start with a command here, listen, but then he doesn't make assertions or commands. He says, just think about this with me. Reason with me. Use your mind and see if you can come to the same conclusions that I come to. 
And the first of these rhetorical questions is right here in verse 5, when he says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? This is the first rhetorical question. And this rhetorical question reminds us of the basis on which God saves people. Remember, he taught, he is teaching us that it is senseless for Christians to show favoritism because Christ saves people without favoritism. And James begins that argument by asking us this question, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world? And the word chosen leads us to and raises the issue of God's unconditional election. The Bible teaches over and over again what we call the doctrine of election. And although it's a a dirty word, sadly, in many evangelical churches, the fact that it is unpopular and unliked doesn't make it unbiblical or unimportant. In fact, just the opposite. The fact that it is unliked means God's people should be grappling with it more than probably we are. As James describes the lack of favoritism in God's saving work of people, he begins with the issue, the topic of divine election. And the Bible over and over again teaches the truth of divine election, which is this, that God is the one who chooses to save people. This is the doctrine of election. And a lot of American Christians don't believe it. They believe that Jesus died for sinners and now it's a a big grab bag. And anyone who hears it and wants to reach into that grab bag can have some of that salvation for themselves. Now, it is true that Christ's death is sufficient to save everyone. I believe the Bible teaches that. But that's not nearly what the doctrine of election teaches. It's not about the sufficiency of Christ's death. But rather, it's about who's Christ, who's Christ, who. Christ's atonement is applied to. That's what the doctrine of election is about. And I don't have time for a full-orbed teaching about the topic of election. We've taught that in many ways over the years in this church. But I just need you to understand that the Bible, chooses, or the Bible teaches over and over again, every writer of the New Testament teaches that it is God, in fact, who chooses who will be saved. That's what the doctrine of election is all about. It means that God has individually and personally chosen every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's true that people do choose to believe in Jesus. I'm not saying that human choice has nothing to do with salvation. It's essential to salvation. But here's the point. We don't choose first. God chose first, the Bible says, in eternity past. And based on God's electing grace and based on his grace to us through the gospel message and based on the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, that's when people respond to the grace of God and choose to freely believe in Christ. You aren't chosen based on foreseen faith. You're chosen based on the electing love of of God alone. And that electing love is what caused you to choose Christ when you heard the gospel message. But who exactly does God choose to be saved? Because if you and I were trying to assemble a team, 
we would try to choose the best people, right? We would try to choose, if, we, if it's an athletic team, we tried to choose the best athletes. If it's a finance team, we tried to choose the people with the best money acumen. If we were trying to choose good people, we would choose people based on their morals and whatnot. What basis does God use to choose people to be saved? Well, this verse tells us. It says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world? See, this is why favoritism has no place in the Christian church. Because favoritism is usually based on the appearance of someone, the appearance often of someone's wealth. That was the core issue in the churches that James was writing to. They were favoring the rich. And James says it's irrational to do that because that's not the kind of person that God chooses to be saved, that God chooses to put into his church. Instead, James says, the people that God chooses are people who are poor in the eyes of this world. And that phrase, in the eyes of this world, tells us the standards by which poverty is measured. It talks about the standards by which the world evaluates other people, whether it thinks we're impressive or unimpressive, rich or poor, influential or not. We're all being ranked by one another all the time, at least in the worldly sense. But when it came to God's choosing for his kingdom, when it came to understanding and selecting those who would receive the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. God had no concern, no care whatsoever for any of the ways that, that this world ranks and values other people. And so James now returns to this issue of who God chooses, and he does so based on the previous verses where he talks about the two men who come into the church And the people in the church give the wealthy man a good seat and they give the poor man a place to stand in the back or a poor seat next to somebody's feet. And James reviews those things. And I tried to tell you those things that I tried to tell you that when Christians evaluate other people who come into the church that way, that we're making judgments based on appearances, based on looks. That's what the word favoritism means. It means to receive the face. Now, James, again, picks up on that theme of looks and tells us that the world looks at us as being poor. That the people that God has chosen for his kingdom, that the people that God has chosen to save are not well regarded by the world. In fact, when the world looks at the face of Christians, it sees, by and large, people who are poor. That's why he uses this phrase in the eyes of the world. Now, of course, it often refers to those who are economically poor. Absolutely. Those who have less money, less wealth than other people around them. It also means that we lack station in society in many cases. It also means that we lack power politically in many ways. Sometimes it even means we lack personal dignity in the way that we carry ourselves in this world. Because remember that as Jesus talked about what it means to be poor, and as the Bible described the, the words that, uh, that as Jesus talked about who would, who would enter the kingdom of God, and the Bible writers recorded his words, Luke said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew said, blessed are the poor, what? In spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These, these concepts, these these um, two different recordings of what Jesus said capture the essence of what he said. 
that it's not just economic poverty that is true of those that God chooses to save. But rather, being poor in the eyes of this world means much more than that. And often it means lacking the personal dignity that, and pride that many people in this world carry themselves with and live by. A poor person who is poor in spirit, and every Christian is poor in spirit, whether they're poor economically or not, but a poor person who is poor in spirit may be poor economically as well, or it might just be that they're average or above average or even wealthy, but in their hearts, they recognize they are someone who needs the grace of God and that their money or station or status is never going to get it to them. That is, Whatever this person has going for them, their wealth, their status, their brains, their good looks, whatever it is, they understand that that has no value when it comes to their relationship with God. A person who is poor in spirit realizes that they have nothing to bring to God, nothing of value to offer God, that even their most moral moments still fall short of the perfections of God in this world. And so a person like that hears the gospel message and being poor in spirit, they repent of their sins. They come forward to receive the the salvation that Christ offers by his grace. But repentance is an admission of weakness. And in our world, nobody wants to admit that they're weak. Nobody wants to be seen as incapable or incompetent. Nobody wants to be seen as someone who is desperate. And so only the desperate person, only the desperate person will swallow his or her pride and ask for help. And that describes pretty well the person who is poor in the eyes of this world. Often it is someone who's poor economically. But regardless of how much or how little money they have, someone who is poor in spirit recognizes their desperate need of God and their inability to bring anything of value to God. James and every other writer of of the New Testament says that's the kind of person that God saves. God doesn't save the proud. He doesn't save those who think they have something to offer God. He saves the desperate He saves the people who are poor in the eyes of this world. And what does God do for that person who is poor in the eyes of this world? Well, verse 5 continues to tell us. It says, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world for two things, and they're connected, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. To be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised to those who love him. First of all, God chooses the poor in spirit to be rich in the realm of faith. That means God has chosen this person for something. That person, God has chosen the person who is poor in spirit, who repents and realizes they need Christ. God has chosen that person to be the recipient of the wealth of his grace. To receive the forgiveness of sins that only God can offer. And that forgiveness of sins comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It comes through believing that Jesus died for our sins. As James describes the grace of God in election, he says God chooses people 
to be rich in faith. But then he goes on and says that God chooses those who are rich in faith for something else. And that is in the second point here. To inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. This word inherit could be more literally translated to be heirs of the kingdom he promised to those who love him. And it's a reminder that God has done something in Christ just beyond, far beyond even the forgiveness of sins. As as great as that is and as crucial and as wonderful as that is spiritually speaking, God has done so much more than that. God did not just forgive you of your sins and save you from the fires of hell when you got saved, although he did do that. Instead, he put you on a destiny for something so much better. Better, of course, than the fires of hell, but better than this life and even the best life that money could buy in this life. Now you are subject to becoming the heir of the kingdom of God. And as someone who is going to become the heir of the kingdom of God, you have an eternity that's waiting for you, that's better than anything that this world has to offer. And when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, we need to understand that it's talking about something that is future to us. That's indicated in this passage here. When James says it's something that he promised to those who loved him. Something that's promised hasn't been received yet. Now it's true that we became citizens of the kingdom the moment we got saved. But we're not yet in the kingdom. The kingdom is future. It's coming. It will come when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. Not in heaven. People think we're going to spend eternity in heaven. That's false. We're going to spend eternity on earth. The new earth. Where Christ establishes his kingdom. And where he will rule and reign in righteousness. And the Bible says in the amazing grace of God. That those who enter the kingdom of God by faith. Will not only experience a life and eternity of eternal bliss. But that they, that we, in fact, will be rulers with Christ. We will rule and reign with him because we're his heirs. We're not just subjects of the kingdom. We're owners of the kingdom with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of this describes what God has done in his election. And what God has done in his election is taken people who don't necessarily and often don't have any clout in this world whatsoever, don't have anything to offer in this world whatsoever, and said, I'm going to give you the gift of faith, and I'm going to promise to you a kingdom that will last forever, where you will rule and reign with me. This is what God has done for us in salvation. This is what every person who is a believer in Christ, everyone who has received the free gift of salvation. This is what is true of you and what's true of me. All of this is to emphasize the point that God's choice, that God's working in this world, the way that salvation worked is not based on your status in this world. Instead, just the opposite. That God chooses those who have no status in this world. Either because they literally don't have any and recognize it and in repentance of their sins turn desperately to Christ. Or maybe they do have something this world has to offer, but they realize before God 
that what they think they have that's valuable in this world is no more valuable than Monopoly money. Play that game Monopoly much? My family and I play it a lot. The winner of Monopoly usually has most of all of the money or most of it and most of the properties, right? They've got all the wealth in the world. Gather that up and take it to the gas station and try to buy one stick of gum with it. And I don't think you'll be successful because it doesn't actually have any value. It has value in the game, but not in reality. Wealth in this world has value in this world, but it means nothing when it comes to God. And so God, when he saves people. It doesn't look at people who are winning the game of monopoly on this earth. He chooses based on his own electing grace alone. And that tends to go to people who are poor in the eyes of this world, or at least people who recognize that what they have in this world means nothing to God. Now, all of that, this amazing one verse of scripture that's just packed with truth, All of that is to emphasize to us and to teach us why it's stupid for us to show favoritism in the church. And it's stupid for us to show favoritism in the church. It's it's illogical. It's unreasonable. It's senseless. Because God didn't save you based on favoritism. And if you want to mirror the greatness of the glory of God in your life, and you should if you're a Christian, then you want to treat other people the way that God treated us, not based on whatever human merits they had or we have, but based on love alone. The doctrine of election is always comes in the context of love. And notice that even here in our passage, it shows up. At the end of the verse, it says in verse 2-5, who did God promise this kingdom? He promised it to those who love him. And who loves him? Well, the Bible tells us we love him because he first loved us. We don't show favoritism in the church. It's illogical for us to do so. It's unreasonable. It's senseless because God is a God of love and his love isn't about favoritism. It's about his own generosity and grace. And so we, his people, should mirror his generosity and grace in the way that we live, in the way that we treat other people. It's illogical, it's unreasonable for us to show favoritism because God did not show favoritism when he saved us. Now going forward into verse 6, we're going to see um, the hard disjunction between the way that God operates and the way that Christians operate. Looking again at verse 5, he says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor. The way that these people were treating the poor in their community was so far out of step with the way that God has treated us in the way that he saved us in the way that he treats us in this life. And all of this is to try to correct our thinking and our vision about the world around us. Favoritism comes so naturally to us. It seems sensible to us until we look at the world through God's eyes, until we come to understand the way that God works in this world, and until we come to desire and reflect the greatness of the glory of God and the way that he treated us and the way that we treat other people. 
And so when James says you've dishonored the poor, that's, this is when he begins to really cut deep into the favoritistic ways that God's people often treat one another. Favoritism goes against the grain of God's grace. Unlike Jesus, who chooses the poor and the poor in spirit, we make kings and queens in the church of people who look good because we don't see them the way that God sees them. We don't see ourselves the way that God sees us. This is why favoritism makes no sense for us in the church. It makes no sense because Christ saves people without ever showing favoritism. But there's a second reason why favoritism makes no sense for Christians, and that's because favoritism benefits the enemies of God. When we favor people based on their economic power or their political power or whatever, a lot of times we don't realize that what we're doing is favoring and giving benefit to the enemies of God. Notice how the passage goes forward. The next phrase in verse 6 and into verse 7 says this. James resumes with the rhetorical questions here and says, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? As James begins to explain to us why, and continues to explain to us why it is senseless for us to show favoritism, he points out and draws out for us the fact that the people who are privileged in this world, the people who are wealthy in this world, the people who have power in this world, are often the enemies of God himself. And yet when they come to church, we act as if they're almost God himself. It's a form of idolatry in the way that we treat other people. As James describes to us how these, these, uh, these people that are, being, that are receiving favoritism are the enemies of God, he makes a number of statements that are important for us to understand from the passage of Scripture. And let's look again at the verse where he says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? The, the word exploiting means to take advantage of. And in James's world, in James's culture, many people got wealthy by exploiting the poor. And even in our world, there are some people who have made fortunes by exploiting the poor. I don't have time to go into this, but I would say that the way that games of chance are used in our culture. I'm talking here about the lottery and casino gambling. Many of these are ways of victimizing poor people. Why? Because it dangles out for them the possibility of having all of their economic problems solved with one pull of the slot machine or with one round of cards or with one scratch off of the cards of the lottery. And in my opinion, it is despicable that our government raises so much money this way because it terribly targets the poor who turn over money day after day, week after week, over and over again, handing over money, hoping for the promise of wealth that is so unlikely to come their way. When James talks about exploiting the poor, the rich people exploiting the poor, this is what he has in mind. But he goes further and talks about another way that they're exploited. 
And that is this, by using the legal system. He says, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? I don't know if you've ever been sued before. I have, though it was dropped the next day, thankfully. At least my name was dropped from it. But it's a pretty terrifying experience, especially when the person suing you is a lawyer, which was the case in my situation. He has unlimited access to the courts. He has all the cards in his favor. Even if I had the facts on my side, which I did, he had great advantages as an attorney that I did not have. Sometimes those types of things are used in our world. Sometimes the courts are used by the wealthy or by the connected or by the powerful against the poor. But I think even in our world, we're going to see this more and more. I think the way in which churches have had to sue in the last year just for the right to meet. Las Vegas was one example where they were allowed, the casinos were allowed to operate at 50% capacity and churches were told they had to operate at a much lower capacity. Why? Because the government, the state, honored one group of people, showed favoritism toward one group of people over another. And they used the power of the state to do that. But James goes on in verse Uh, the final verse of our passage, verse 7, and really brings all of this into focus. And remember the point here is that these people are the enemies of God. That's what James is trying to to help us understand, that favoritism benefits the enemies of God. And that becomes clear when we look at verse 7, when he says, are they not the ones who are blaspheming the name of the noble name of him you, of whom you are called? Blaspheming is an idea or a concept of any time God's name is used in an abusive way, sometimes it's used to attribute bad motives or bad actions to God. And other times it's simply used as a curse. Anytime God's word is or God's name is abused by his enemies, they are blaspheming. And notice he calls this the noble name. This is the name of Jesus, and it's the name to whom you belong. We call ourselves Christians. We've applied the name of Christ. To our lives. It was God's enemies who actually created that term, but we carry it with pride, with, in the best sense of the word, in the most noble sense of the word. It is a privilege to be called by the name of Jesus Christ because he has graced us and honored us and adopted us into his family and made us the, inheritant, the inheritors of his kingdom. But the world around us, the rich, the powerful, the people that we instinctively kind of honor with favoritism, are often the people who not only don't care about the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're actively working against his will and against his kingdom. They show themselves again and again to be the enemies of God. And since they show themselves to be the enemies of God, that means they're our enemies as well. That means it's illogical and it's senseless for us to show favoritism to people who have power and wealth and status in the eyes of this world because they are the enemies of our God. And so favoritism comes naturally to us. It makes sense on one level, but it makes no sense for those of us who are Christians. And so my take-home truth for you, the, the, the thing I want us to think about as we close this message this morning is that you and I as Christians need to be sensible about favoritism as an intentional act of faith. You see, it takes faith not to show favoritism in this world. You have to believe 
that God is going to honor you if you reflect his glory in this world and actually love the poor, actually care about people who are despised in this world the way that Jesus did. It takes faith to operate that way. It takes an intentional act of faith to live in a way that doesn't favor those who already are well-advantaged and well-connected and wealthy in this world. How does a passage of scripture like this apply to us as a church? Let me just touch on a few ways as we close this message this morning. First of all, obviously, if somebody who was well-known for being wealthy or politically connected suddenly came to our church, this would immediately apply to us. Because what would our tendency be? We would all, like, our jaws would drop and we would follow them across the room, down the aisle, as they come to get the best seat in the house here in the second or first row. We would gawk at them because that's natural. But if we understand this passage, someone who's wealthy and famous and politically well-connected and has everything this world has to offer, if they came to our church, hopefully we would see them as someone that maybe has realized that they are poor in spirit and need the gospel of the grace of God. They don't need our attention. They don't need our fawning. They need Jesus. And we should treat them as such. But also, when someone comes into our church who is unfamiliar to us, who is not connected, who doesn't have the latest threads, someone who may be obviously even poor, when they come to us, we should show them the same kind of grace, the same kind of acceptance, the same kind of love that Christ shows toward those whom he saves in this world. So that's one application, obviously. But I want to apply it in a bigger way. James was writing in the context of the local church and how they function, and of course that's how it applies to us. But I think the principle, the truth, applies in a larger context than that. Because we live in a world where the hostility against Christ is being turned up. Am I right? We live in a world where taking a stand for Christ is no longer acceptable in our society, and more and more it becomes a basis for discrimination. I don't think it happens much yet, but there may come a point when people like you, working in the secular world, are told to be quiet about your faith or lose your job. Maybe even to renounce your faith or lose your job. And at that point, it becomes a choice about favoritism. Do I honor Jesus Christ or do I honor this person who's favored me with work? But even before we get to that point, Again, we live in a world that is, seems to be lining up ways in which to treat us with disfavor. And often we give these people attention still, despite the fact that we don't deserve it. Here's what I mean. The evangelical church has cozied up to the government, to politicians, for most of my lifetime in this world. And in some cases... Some people who have enacted good legislation have been elected, but if you look at the course of legislation in this world, things have changed a lot and not in a good direction. Despite how many people evangelicals have gotten behind, have campaigned for, have given attention to, have given money to. And so maybe we need to rethink the way that we 
hold politicians. I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in the political process, but many Christians talk about politicians like they are demigods. And that's favoritism. It's wicked in the sight of our Lord. Beyond politicians, though, there are people in this world who have made themselves famous by making movies or making songs or writing works of fiction or whatever. And they are open blasphemers against the greatness of God. They are in open rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not people who love him and going to be recipients of his kingdom. They are on attack against his kingdom. And yet we fawn over these people. We pay attention to them. We buy their latest album or go to see their latest movies. We talk about how great and wonderful they are, despite the fact that they speak against us and against God's word and against God's people. Is this not a form of favoritism? I think it is. So while we need to guard against favoritism in our church, and we definitely need to think about how to do that, we also need to think about just the way that we look at the world around us. The attention that we pay and the money that we pay to people who are enemies of God makes no sense for people who belong to God's kingdom because it's just completely against the way that God himself works in this world. But if you and I are going to be able to separate ourselves, if we're going to be holy, if we're going to fight against the current of favoritism that runs so swiftly and so easily in this world around us. It's going to take an intentional act of faith. Let me urge you then to be sensible, to think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to bear his name. And then what kind of attention is it appropriate to give to anyone else in this world? That takes an intentional act of faith.